This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and welcome again. I'm so glad you're on this journey to product mastery. Today, we're talking about the seven habits of creative people. I'm hoping one thing we figure out is that we all are creative people and can certainly apply these habits. And for this discussion, we certainly need someone who is truly creative themselves. And that is why Nathan Phillips is with us. He is the co-founder of Technology, Humans, and Taste, or That. I'm curious about that. Nathan, maybe you can tell us more about that title in a moment. He leads the development of a proprietary collaborative methodology, which invites diverse and unfamiliar collaborators to co-create innovative concepts, and also in the process leveraging AI to supercharge those ideas, which sounds also very interesting. He's been a best-selling author and also an Emmy Award winner on top of that, lending to his creative juice. And if you want to go back, listeners, and find the written show notes of anything we talk about, we do take a detailed summary of everything that we discuss. And we also create a one-page action guide for you to put into action some of the key points we'll discuss. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 356. Nathan, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Chad. I'm really excited to chat with you. So first, I am curious about that, technology, humans, and taste. How did you come up with such a name? It's a good question. In many ways, it is a terrible name. And whenever naming something, product or otherwise, I always know that it's a perfect name when I don't like it, but it couldn't possibly be anything else. And that's exactly what happened when naming Matt, we had a couple of really cool, you know, very, I think, relevant, trendy and Googleable names. But I was walking down the street and I was thinking about, you know, how do you kind of identify as an organization that makes things that are additive, an organization that really makes things that people want? And I realized as a pretty fancy car drove by me on Class and Avenue in Brooklyn, that when you see something you want, you say, "Ooh, I want that. And that is this primal expression of desire, which is really powerful. But if you start to walk it out a little bit, that actually is also the word you use when you see something you've never seen before. What was that? that? Did you see that? What the F was that? And that for me became, as they would say in Dune, like a weirding word (laughs) that it just like was so dimensional and impactful that it had to be called that. And as we started to unpack it, everything that we do as a company is based on a systems approach to creativity. So we've got rules and regulations and process that is very fun and engaging, but we always try to make sure that we're not talking about what we believe in, but actually talking about what we do. So we realized it's the perfect acronym to define something you've never seen before, but that you truly desire, which is technology, humans, and taste. And to unpack that, if I may, just mm-hmm. a little further, technology and humans is really well represented by a company like Google. And their development approach is iterative, right? They make and they make and they make, and they're driven to discover as they go. But it's really not curated. It's very friendly, very emotional. You know, they can put the search bar in a TV screen and make a Super Bowl ad out of it. On the other side of it, you've got Apple. Technology and taste, a perfectly curated Mm. company. Once a year, they do something absolutely perfect. But what they lack is that emotional availability. When you see that company, we kind of feel like we're working for Apple. 
right? It's time to do USB-C. You got it, Apple. Anything you say. So what we try to do is always make sure that we're touching technology, humans, and taste in what we make. So our work feels very premium and highly crafted, very special, but also like unambiguously emotional. And the technology that we use, which is omnipresent, is always invisible and in service of that human side of things. Okay. So a lot there to unpack, but what I enjoyed about that description is the creativity also with, you know, purpose and some system thinking that went into coming up with that and how you turn that into the acronym that relates to it. There's one other curiosity that got me as I was reading your bio, and that's that you had some experience working with the Blue Man Group. Yeah. What was that about? Well, I think... I'm a huge fan of Blue Man Group. And a lot of the time when people think about Blue Man, they think about it as an audience member um, because mm-hmm. we've, you, go, you go see Blue Man and you like it or you don't. Right. But from a creative structure perspective, I think they are one of the most inspiring organizations that has ever existed. Three guys in a black box theater in New York created this global empire of incredibly avant-garde, wild, wacky, nonverbal art. And I had the opportunity to work with them while I was collaborating with a guy named Michael Counts, who's a definite creative genius, who is in New York. And we created an interactive for their touring company. So people in the audience, rather than being asked to put away their phones, actually were invited to take them out. And they had a synced up mobile experience that happened during the live performance. And this is like I mean, like 15 years ago. So really ahead of their time. And it was basically a theatrical chatbot interactive experience that extended the world of Blue Man out into this dialogue and interactive experience for the audience. I became so obsessed with their process that I actually went through the audition process and got trained up. They gave me drum classes and I was painted blue and given the opportunity to participate as a Blue Man, which I gratefully declined. But I think they're amazing. Amazing. So so how how tall are you? Six, one and a smidge. Which is like right in the zone. Because there's, yeah, there's some minimum to be a blue man person, right? Yeah, well, the, there's like all sorts of rules and regulation and it's all templatized around the original three creators. So they've really yeah. productized the characters in many ways, which is a cool way of thinking about it. Yep. How do they make them blue? They have proprietary makeup, proprietary, all sorts of stuff that they put on the characters. So it's a really cool process that is all their own, completely okay. invented. Yeah. I've only seen them once in concert and just thought that was amazing. So cool show. After okay. the podcast, I could, I could teach you one of the drum beats if you want. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> My son's a drummer, so he would probably like that too. Yeah, cool. Okay. So on to the seven habits of people that actually are creative, people that have ideas. Where did that come from? I liked it before that you talked about as a company, you really have a systems thinking approach and guidelines and systems for innovation. Where did these seven habits come from? Well, I always try to, on a personal level, really focus on teachable methodologies around collaboration and creativity. People think about creativity as this magic power or that Some people have it, as you said in the opening, like you wish that everyone was creative. And of course, everyone's creative, but we sometimes lack the vocabulary to understand how to build an idea. I truly believe that it's just like math. And once you figure out how to construct an idea, all you need to do is start slotting ingredients into that process. And you can start to watch as innovative, original ideas emerge from your process. Now, one of the biggest challenges is people always think ideas have to be good, which is actually anti-creative. You can't know if an idea is going to be good 
until it's executed. So along with a structured um, approach to creativity, which inspired the seven rules of creativity, a process which is radically inclusive, meaning the way that I work and we work as a company is designed to be understandable by absolutely anybody and inclusive of anybody's participation. It's also all about celebrating the fact that having 300 ideas is how you have a good idea. You have to create a scale to actually discover or notice an idea rather than just have a perfect, beautiful Easter egg pop out of your brain, which never happens. Excellent. Okay. So now we're going to, we'll figure this out a little bit. So you have intrigued me and hopefully listeners as well about what these habits are. So if you can take us through the habits for, uh, yeah. hopefully all of us can feel a little bit more creative after this and know that we can generate good ideas. Well, I, sh- I okay, should remove cool. the word good, that we can generate ideas that lead to good ideas. You can absolutely generate ideas and inspire connections. So these are all, if you were to Google, how do I have an idea? You'll find a lot of like, go walk in the forest and listen to music or, you know, go to a museum. I disagree with that. If you want to have ideas, don't go to a museum. Museums are where you go to look at ideas, not to have them. If you want to have ideas, you have to go somewhere where you are going to be inspired to actually come up with stuff. So I'm going to read the seven rules, just the titles. They're pithy. And okay. then I'll go back and explain them. Is that cool? Yep. If, and if you'd like to add a sound effect after I read each title, I wouldn't be against it. Rule number one, don't eat with your hands. Rule number two, art is dead. Rule number three, keep it Kanye. Rule number four, save your trash. Rule number five, we call the Tina Turner principle. Rule number six is worship Satan. And rule number seven is create a code. Thanks. Okay, we got the seven rules out, or as I was thinking of them earlier, as habits. Hmm. So now you get to take us through these and explain them. Cool, awesome. And I appreciate that because whether we're talking about a brand or creating something for actual humans, thinking about things as habits and behaviors, I think is kind of the eighth and most important rule of creativity. If you make something and you go, wow, man, that works really well, or I'm so proud of the power of my technology, or let me explain how cool this thing is, it is not a good idea. If you make something and you go, let me explain how people are going to use this or you're not going to be able to, you're not going to wait to be able to wait to get your hands on this. That's a good idea. Ideas are things that people use, that people consume and that people desire. Desire is the driving force behind all really great creative expressions. So rule number one, don't eat with your hands. Basically, I think it's incredibly important to always have a writing utensil. My writing partner of years gone by was a guy named Joe Schiappa, still named Joe Schiappa. And he would always call me out if I didn't have a pen. The reason is, if you don't have something to capture your thinking, you are left without that idea. My wife, Victoria Wellman, is a speechwriter whose book comes out in April of 2022. And she makes the point that if you have an idea and don't say it, it doesn't exist. So always have a writing utensil. Now, why shouldn't you write in your phone? Well, the reason you shouldn't write in your phone is because paper and surfaces to write on exist in nature. Phones were designed by humans. And the people that designed your phone were nerds. What do nerds write? Nerds write code. 
So word processing programs, notes templates are all designed to make lists, but beautiful ideas don't happen in order. So a piece of paper and a pen allows you to express mm -hmm. in however it comes out, the actual creative data point that has happened in your head. So a piece of paper and a pen. And if you go to my Instagram at Nathan Phillips in my link tree, you will find a list of the writing utensils I use and highly recommend. Excellent. Do any of those include pencils? I personally don't use pencils. As our crumb, potentially controversial cartoonist says, pencils are too easy because they allow you to erase. And I'm paraphrasing. I use a double-sided Sharpie, micro-thin on one side and right. slightly fatter on the other. Yep. That's my pen of choice. Yeah, just curious. It's actually something that I'm, I'm working on that I'll talk more about in sometime in the future. But this notion of not typing, but actually writing, it seems like our brains engage differently when we're writing. And we remember that mm -hmm. information, I think, better than when we actually type. And I, I'm, I'm right actually... now debating between pen and pencil because even though I prefer writing and pen pencil feels a little bit more more like giving me license to sketch and there's times that mm -hmm. that that feels like the right thing to do so well i think one important nuance there is a well a research would show you that writing actually does activate your brain differently because thinking is a physical act right you're an organic biological being so when you write you're actually focusing your brain and your body in a more intricate action than typing, which is just hitting a key. So writing does make you remember things and think differently than typing. The second point is just that, and we'll get to this with rule number four, every mark you make on a piece of paper has value. Mm. And when you sketch, because it's a pencil, you're actually giving it less value. You're saying, I can sketch, it's less meaningful, it's more carefree. With a pen, you're locked into it. What you're doing has value. And it's a good mnemonic to say, when you're doing it, this is work and this is real. And eventually this might emerge into being something really important. I don't throw away any of my cards and have a pretty ornate card organization system yeah. a la Orny Adams. Yeah. Okay. Good. Interesting. Okay. Habit two. Habit number two is that art is dead. And I teased this earlier. Um, if you want to be a citizen, you should listen to music you love and you can rely on the algorithm to deliver to you whatever it is you enjoy. If you want to be a creator, you should do exactly the opposite. You should listen to music that you don't and find out what you could love about it. You should not go to museums to be inspired because that is legitimately just being derivative. <laughs> What's been done before? What do I like about it? Instead, go to the place least like a museum and find something that belongs in a museum. So really approach the world from the perspective of someone who's creatively engaged and trying to discover their, their own way of seeing the world. Interesting on that. And, and this may come up in a, another habit where it might fit better. I know for me, um, certainly doing something different than my norm is stimulating. And personally, I like mm -hmm. physical projects. So if I take time mm -hmm. out to do a physical project, which might even be a, a home chore to fix something that's broken, that's often a time I get new ideas that come to me that otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great insight. And in our process, we give uh, clients a bar of soap with every creative engagement because your brain actually does think of ideas in moments when it's inactive. So the time you're most likely to do it is when you're doing something like a piece of carpentry, you're in the shower, you're on the toilet or you're driving. 
because huh. those are the moments when you're a alone for the first time all day outside of the context of your work habits and you're going through a physiological change so your body is transforming and that is when your brain is most likely to connect two random disconnected pieces of information and collapse them into a single concept so facilitating those behaviors is a great way to engender more creative thinking the reason i didn't include it as a is because you have to do the work before you get in the shower to have the shower thought right okay good might also yeah. suggest we should have a notepad and pen uh, on our toilets. I mean, absolutely. Okay. On to habit three. Habit number three, keep it Kanye. So I'm going to leave my Kanye fandom, which is obviously a complex and sometimes morose subject out of it. But if you, for example, saw recently the release of Donda, his most recent album. You can talk about the music, but talk about the process. And the process is actually a really, really important representation of a high value creative behavior because he was finishing the album. You know, so there are many people that would tell you that the key to, you know, creative thinking is I having a good IP lawyer, right? This idea that you want to protect your creative is actually anti-creative. And what it does is create an environment and an economy where those with the most um, equity have the easiest time protecting their ideas. And those with less access have a harder time exposing their ideas to places where they could actually get made. So I always recommend showing your work. So in an office environment, having boards up and mandating that people show their work at the end of every day is really key. For yourself, if you're sitting at a bar and you're thinking about a great idea, but it's only half-baked, tell somebody about it. Practice pitching it. Put it into action and actually display your work. And if they can steal it, it wasn't a good idea. Like it was just part of the zeitgeist. But if they actually respond to it, then you know you've got something special and truly original and it's yours to run with. It's risky, but there's nothing to be afraid of with sharing your work. Yeah, I think we do ourselves a disservice more times than not. And then there's certainly exceptions to everything. But by thinking we're going to keep something secret and it's going to be the best thing by the time we get it done, you know, introduce to the world. Mm-hmm. Instead, we really need to be sharing it with others and, and doing, there's opportunities to co-create. There's also opportunities to test our ideas and get feedback and make things. And I haven't seen too many products that take place in secrecy and then become a big thing overnight. Yeah, absolutely. Unless... They did that by diminishing opportunity for other people who are creating something similar. The, it's also interesting to think about, you know, from the lens of accessibility. Accessibility um, features, accessibility being thought of as a separate exercise to design is a result of having a non-inclusive design practice. Because thinking about a use of an individual as a use that is other than the normative use. We live in a world built for right-handed people. You know, the including outside voices, exposing your ideas and really reaching out and bouncing those ideas off other people will make your ideas better because they will include more perspectives and therefore be more expansive. Excellent. So this is a very good segue then to a sponsor ad, which is the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. And that is a service that I provide companies, uh, myself and my group. We take you through a nine-week journey, meeting 75 minutes a week to really build a holistic perspective on product management. And it supercharges your team, makes them a higher-performing team. It helps improve collaboration across everyone. 
builds new trust with each other, breaks down some barriers, gets everyone moving in the same direction together. Lots of important outcomes. But that connection to the creativity that is gained and maybe even some wisdom and knowledge that's gained by doing it as a group because you're learning not just from me and materials, you're really learning from the discussion and the application of the practices that we learn to the work you're doing. And by doing it as a group together, there's just a lot more richness because we're talking about how the concepts apply to your actual work. And you're hearing from your colleagues their interpretation of those concepts and what they've tried. And so lots of goodness that comes out of this experience. Teams really do move forward faster afterwards, and they have a much better understanding of why they're doing the work they're doing instead of just how to do the work. If you want to find out more about that, you can check out productmasterynow.com slash RPM. So how to tie that into habit three seemed to make good sense. Yeah, that was great. That brings us to habit four. Habit four is save your trash. The, you know, on writing by Stephen King is a beautiful book and highly recommended to everybody. I've read it multiple times, but he has a wonderful story about his first novel, Carrie, which he threw after the first chapter and his wife pulled out of the trash, flipped through and said, this represents to me something that is very authentic um, to the experience of a young woman in high school. And so he finished the book and that was the book that launched his entire career and an incredibly impactful career. And all of it was just hiding in the trash. There is everything to be said for reimagining your process through the lens of what you throw away, literally taking your garbage can and displaying it. How can you take these pieces and start to actually engage with them? And a big part of our process is actually finding ways to use all of those disparate pieces, all of those data points and connecting them because in that trash is hiding your great story. In that trash is hiding your great concept. And in that trash is hiding your great product. You just probably threw it away before you knew what you were doing. So it's really a crime against your future self to get rid of it. And instead, you have to respect the output and the journey to come up with something beautiful that might not just be ready to be tossed yet. Right. Yeah. And generating ideas is not an exercise in reaching perfectionism. And I think Mm -hmm. some of us are certainly wired that we're trying to live up to some perfect image that we have of our work and that work that doesn't make that great in any given moment ends up in the trash can as opposed to Mm -hmm. making progress on, on ideas is probably much better for us and making progress and getting things moving forward than trying to wait till that day that things are perfect. Yeah. I, um, a really amazing improvisationalist named Matt Higgins told me once that improv is just making a mess and cleaning it up. Mm. And I think about that all the time because I think it's the perfect like expression of what the creative act is. And, you know, if you walk into a room with a book and a beautiful orchid and show me how many different ways you can decorate it, like you're pretty much set, put into the bedside table and then shrugging your shoulders. But if you walk into a room that is a truly like insane disaster and say, how many different rooms can you clean up here? The opportunities are limitless and Mm -hmm. creativity is quite simply an active designing a room that doesn't exist. And the more ingredients you have, the more likely you are to do something cool. Okay. So save your trash. Save your trash. Rule number five. Yep. The Tina Turner principle. We never do anything 
nice and easy, she says in the song. And I think, you know, there are tools which help you have ideas fast. I propose we need ideas that help us have ideas slower. When people talk about designing for the internet, they talk about reducing clicks, reducing friction. Tell me one story that ever got better when you reduced friction for the protagonist. Friction, challenge, work, disruption. That is how you have an idea. You have to make it hard for yourself. If you're making it easy, you're skipping the creative part. So I think, yes, vacuuming the house should be easy. Get a Roomba. But if you're actually trying to come up with an idea, hide something. Jack White has this beautiful thing um, he talks about in the documentary about guitars he was in, where he puts every instrument on stage three feet, afar, three feet farther away than it needs to be. So he's always running. Hmm. That is like a perfect example of how to tune your brain, as Bernie Mac would say, in the comedy gym to actually be working harder and crafting new processes that will result in original thinking. Okay. Which in a sense is is getting out of the way that you've always done things, right? So ma making sure that you're breaking free of traditional thinking and the way you do things by introducing some tension, some friction. Absolutely. You know, choreography is great, but you don't want to be in The Lion King for 10 years because you get bored doing the dances. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good gig at um, first. Okay, have it six yeah. or rule six. We'd all like to be in The Lion King, Chad. <laughs> okay, number six is Worship Satan. The um, There's a writer, Scott Korb, who I respect and appreciate a lot, who introduced me to the idea of religious imagination. I myself converted to Judaism and not knowing anything, but I really, and I'm completely, I call myself a pantheist and that I choose to believe in everything because it keeps it more interesting. But the act of believing in something allows you to think about stuff through the lens of story. So when you approach impossible problems, rather than saying, well, that problem is impossible, think about a world in which that problem makes sense. So as an example, and I say this with an immense amount of respect to all your listeners who are believers, it's really hard to talk to people about human kindness. But if you can tell the story of Jesus, all of a sudden, it becomes something that everybody can understand. So when you're thinking about solving problems, it's really great to play make-believe. There's a wonderful book, and the name of the author escapes me, but it is a Burglar's Guide to the City. And he talks about how Los Angeles is designed for high-speed chases, but we choose to use it for traffic. Interesting. And when bank robbers realize that you can drive off an off-ramp, find a bank, and then get back on an on-ramp, all of a sudden it became the bank robbery capital of the world. And I would consider that an act of religious imagination, looking at traffic and saying, I believe that traffic isn't necessary. And all of a sudden these opportunities arise for creative um, and strategic solutions that were invisible to you before. Okay. I'm going to have to get my hands around that one a little bit more since we started with worship Satan and included human kindness and as the story of Jesus and bank robberies. <laughs> a key summation for me in all that is storytelling is a powerful communication form. It does help us to think about things differently, especially I think what you're suggesting is that, that we flip the story in some sense and kind of reframe how we think about the problem. Is that fair? Am I... Yes. Okay. Yeah. To, to summarize 
Rule number six, worship Satan. A really good way to think about it is using the power of make-believe to solve impossible problems. So when you approach a task where no solutions are available, literally come up with a story with a solution in it. And that solution could be magical. That solution could be from outer space. That solution might be something that you completely invent. And then when you're done thinking of that story and applying your religious imagination to it, take that solution and say, how can I make this real? It's literally taking an impossible problem from real life, washing it in the waters of your incredible fertile imagination, and then bringing it back out and saying, okay, what did I come up with when I wasn't concerned with the rules of reality? And that's where you can get really innovative solutions to problems everybody else is leaving on the floor. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. No problem. And our final rule. Yeah. Seven is create a code. One of the most exciting uh, parts of being a writer is when you write something and people are performing it or reading it and they say your stuff out loud and you go to yourself, I, I can't believe they're saying that. Like I had that crazy idea and they're treating it like it's normal. And that is something that every creative person understands when you make a product or design an experience and then people are actually engaging with it. You realize that all the weird stuff bouncing around your head is really useful to people when you bring it to life. So much earlier on in your process, when you or your collaborators are the only people dealing with stuff, when you say something new or you stumble upon a phrase that just makes sense to you, rather than saying, well, okay, that doesn't make any sense, codify it. If you have this sketch early on in your process and you put it up on the wall and you're not totally sure what it is, but you just keep it and you call it the thing eventually everyone will start referring to the thingamajig on the wall. And the thingamajig will become this beautiful pearl inside of the creative oyster in which you live, where it becomes a useful tool. So naming things and celebrating all of those little pieces of detritus in the creative process are really important. So create a code by naming things and appreciating what you've come up with. Excellent. I like that one. And you might find something in the trash that you pull out and give it a name because it turns out to be important. Okay. Thank yeah, you for absolutely. taking us through the seven rules, rules to help us be better at creating ideas and being creative overall. As listeners know, we love innovation quotes. What did you bring for us? And what does that one mean to you? I brought a quote by one of my favorite stand-up comedians, Mitch Hedberg, which, and he's as much a philosopher as he is a comedian I and mean, he's no longer with us. But the quote is that rice is great if you're really hungry and want to eat 2000 of something. And I'm going to read it like Mitch Hedberg would say it because the timing is really important. The quote is from Mitch Hedberg and it is, rice is great if you're really hungry and want to eat 2000 of something. The reason I love this quote from the perspective of innovation is because it's true. It's just that no one ever thought of it before. Now, to me, everything I learned about innovation, I learned as a comedy writer. Writing a joke and coming up with an innovative concept are exactly the same exercise. It is taking something people understand and looking at it in a whole new way. There's a real big misconception that innovation is coming up with some innovation is cracking the code and a bleeding edge technology and developing it. That's not innovation. That's building something. 
innovation is making something that people will use that actually affects people's lives. And for me, the way to do that is look at the world that we're in and gives people something that is a better version of what they already love. And this quote, rice is great if you're really hungry and want to eat 2000 of something is a wonderful representation of that because, you know, rice is an incredibly popular food that is used in millions and millions of dishes. But what if someone stumbles on this thing where they're like, I just, you know, I'm so hungry that I want to keep eating. I want to eat so much food that there is a like more food than it is possible to consume as a human being. And that's impossible. But if you stop for a second and say, actually, what about rice? What if you ate it one grain at a time? All of a sudden you have a, an entire new recipe book, a whole new way to approach cuisine and tools that will allow you to actually eat rice in a whole new way. What's cool about that is there are rituals, there are experiences, there are social aspects to that and cultural aspects to that, which could really help you engage in a whole new way. Now, what I'm saying is admittedly slightly absurd, but when you start to approach things like mold as penicillin, you realize that this actually tactically is, I think, a really great principled way to approach innovation. And also Mitch Hedberg is very, very funny. Okay. And that helps too. So a <laughs> yeah. great quote, but it's a great example of looking at things differently. Right. And so I, I liked how you, you framed innovation and your definition there of looking at things in a new way that has some impact to people that creates value for them in some sense. So yeah, at technology, humans and taste are driving principle is to create things that humans desire and people love the stuff that they love. They don't love stuff that they don't know about yet. So from that lens, um, looking at the world as it is and trying to figure out how to improve it, I think is a, is a really powerful way to take on the act of innovation. Okay. And speaking of that, technology, humans, and taste, how can listeners find out more about what you do, the organization, and other resources you may have available for us? Yeah, we, our website is at that.site, T-H-A-T dot S-I-T-E. Um, or technologyhumansandtaste.com, whichever one you feel like typing in. And we are offer lots of services. And in the innovation space, we apply our proprietary methodology called Dum Dum and are always excited to tell people more about it. And everyone is invited to our weekly workshop, which has been running for five years called Dum Dum Club. So don't be shy. You can email me, Nathan, at technologyhumansandtaste.com for an invite. Excellent. And we'll make sure the show notes have those links in there to make that easy for you. I just have to ask, Dum Dum, does this have anything to do with the Night at the Museum movie? Dum Dum? No. Interesting. Okay. But I did have a long conversation with that about that movie with my sister-in-law, and she made the point that she found the movie really frustrating because it's really about just a guy who works for all weekend or something. <laughs> I, I like think all if you're, he does is do his job. And then, yeah. I think if your 11-year-old 
that you see it through different eyes and it's just great fun. Yeah. So, and maybe I still have enough 11 year old in me that I, I think it's just great fun. Especially the dumb, yeah. dumb part. If anyone <laughs> needs to go look that up on a YouTube clip. Okay. Again, listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with us. The show notes, the detailed summary of everything we discussed, including that one page action guide to help you put into action these seven habits. You'll find that at productmasterynow.com slash three, five, six. Nathan, thank you. And listeners keep innovating. Thanks, Chad. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.